0: So our scripture reading for this morning is found in Genesis 25. So Pastor Tyler is going to be preaching from Genesis 25 here. And if you would, turn in your Bibles there, and we're going to actually read this whole chapter. So Genesis 25, it's on page 19 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that. And once you find it, if you're able to... Stand with me in honor of God's word and follow along as I read. Genesis 25. Continuing through our series, in the book of Genesis, and this is our text for this morning. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Letumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldeah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth Nebaioth, the first, firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar Ab. Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeder, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled in Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright.
1: Good morning, Bethel. So yesterday was a day of celebration for nerds around the world. Does anybody know why? Yeah it was Star Wars Day. It's the day when the movie phrase, may the force be with you, becomes in all its dad joke, pun level glory, may the fourth be with you. I read a Newsweek article yesterday, actually, that connects the origins of Star Wars Day all the way back to May 4, 1979. On that day, Margaret Thatcher became the first female prime minister of the UK. You're probably wondering right now, where's he going with this? But So on that day, uh, the conservative party, of which Margaret Thatcher was a part, ran an ad in the paper that said, may the fourth be with you, Maggie, congratulations. So I bet you never thought you'd hear a sermon starting by connecting Margaret Thatcher and Star Wars, but there you go. Well, in Star Wars, the main character is a guy named Luke Skywalker. Luke is raised by his aunt and uncle on this unspectacular planet, And he's part of a very important family. His father is Darth Vader, an evil, powerful Sith Lord who possesses the ability to use the spiritual energy that flows throughout the galaxy, uh, the universe, it's referred to as the Force, uh, in really powerful ways. And Vader was once Anakin Skywalker, a Jedi Knight who harnessed that power, the Force, for good, but he turned evil shortly before Luke was born. So, Luke is part of this family, but the thing is, he doesn't really know any of that. It's not until the second movie of the original trilogy that he discovers who he really is. And it may seem silly to to say, to connect the two, but I think we as Christians, we need to guard ourselves against a similar kind of blindness in regard to the Bible and our spiritual heritage. So, by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we have been saved and adopted into God's family. And because that's true, we have this rich spiritual heritage full of brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters in the faith. The problem is, though, that it can be difficult at times to really connect with those people when we read the Bible. After all, we are removed from the characters in Scripture by thousands of years. And uh, we live in a very different time and culture than they did. So this morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis and focusing on chapter 25. Here, we're going to read about a family. A family headed by a man named Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac, and Abraham's, Abraham's grandson Jacob. And what's important about this family and about these three men in particular in Genesis is that they are, surely by God's grace, recipients of God's eternal covenant, first made with Abraham and then passed on to Isaac and to Jacob. This covenant entailed God's promise to give Abraham offspring and land specifically offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, a promise that Abraham believed and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So the promise was offspring, but the promise was also land, specifically the land of Canaan. Well, that's already pretty amazing in its own right, but what is just incredible, what's wonderful, what's miraculous is that the The promise of innumerable offspring that God gives to Abraham is not limited to Abraham's physical descendants. Because of what Jesus, the far-off descendant of Abraham, accomplished through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection, the promise refers to all those, everyone, who exercises an Abraham-like faith and trusts Jesus to save them from their sin. So that's why the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians 3, 7, know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And again in Galatians three twenty nine, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So do you see it? If you are trusting in Jesus this morning, you are part of the innumerable offspring that God promised Abraham. So that promise includes you in it. You are one of those stars Abraham looked up and saw. So God has forgiven you of your sin. He has counted Jesus' righteousness as yours, and he has graciously adopted you into his family of faith, a family that can trace its lineage all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are our spiritual fathers, we are a part of their family and and this is significant their god is our god there is much encouragement in that i think and i hope that today we we get some of it so this morning we're going to work our way through genesis 25 and as we do we're going to focus on a few characteristics of god the god of our fathers so one god is faithful Two, God is sovereign. And three, God is holy and gracious. So let's go to that first point. It's based on verses 1 to 18 that Pastor Chris just read. Our faithful God. So we've said this a lot as we've gone through Genesis, but it's important to point out, one, because it's true, and two, because it's present in the text. God is faithful, and he always keeps his promises. Now it may not be obvious at first glance how that's communicated in verses 1 to 18 of this chapter, but let's look at the text, and we'll see um, five signposts, if you will, that point to God's faithfulness. So first is the description of Abraham's death. Look with me in verses seven to eight. It says, "These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years." Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? One commentator, uh, Victor Hamilton, he describes this well. He says, quote, It is one thing to live a long life. It is another thing to live a long life that is also a happy life. This obituary notice about Abraham draws attention to the fact that Abraham died not only at an elderly age, but in a frame of mind filled with inner shalom and satisfaction. That is the thrust of the phrase, full of days or contented. So don't miss how this points back to God's faithfulness. Back in Genesis 15, verse 15, somewhere in the ballpark of 90 to 100 years before Abraham died, God made him this promise. He said, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. You see the connection? Genesis, Genesis 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace, buried in a good old age. Now, Genesis 25, you see it happen. Abraham dies at a good old age, he's full of years. And he goes to his people so even in this description of abraham's death god's faithfulness is present so second the place of abraham's burial did you catch that when pastor chris read it earlier so verses 9 to 10 say that isaac and ishmael abraham's sons buried him in the cave of machpelah in the field of ephron the son of zohar the hittite east of mamre the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. In Genesis 23, Abraham purchases that field with a cave in it in order to bury his wife, Sarah. Now, what's significant about that is not just that Abraham needed a place to bury his wife, but also because it marked the first plot of land in Canaan that was legally Abraham's possession In Genesis 17, 8, God promises to give Abraham all the land in Canaan as an everlasting possession. And he begins to fulfill it with the purchase of land in Genesis 23. And we are reminded of it here in Genesis 25. Signposts of God's faithfulness on the page. So like the description of Abraham's death, this little geographic detail shows us that our God is faithful so that's two. Three, the blessing of Isaac. In verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. This is massively important. In Genesis 17:9, God tells Abraham that he will establish his covenant with Isaac as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Ishmael, Abraham's son through Hagar, is not the covenant heir. Neither are any of the six sons born to Abraham through Keturah, who's mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. The chosen covenant heir through whom God's promises would continue is Isaac. That's why in verses five and six of this chapter, Abraham gives everything he has to Isaac and sends his other sons away to the east country. He is safeguarding Isaac. He is providing for Isaac. He is ensuring that the promises of the covenant would continue through his boy. And continue it does, as we read here in Genesis 25, that God blesses Isaac, Abraham's son. Four, the place of Isaac's settlement. Verse 11 says, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beir Laharoy. The name means the well of the living one who sees me. Now we learn where that comes from in Genesis 16. There, Hagar, Sarah's servant, flees from Sarah and is by a spring of water in the wilderness. She's on the run because of events that had happened earlier. So about 10 years after God first promised to make Abraham a great nation, Abraham and Sarah still remained childless. Abraham didn't have an heir. So they took matters into their own hands, and they agreed for Abraham to have a child through Hagar. Hagar conceives, and she looks uh, with contempt upon Sarah once she's pregnant. And because of that, Sarah deals harshly with her, which leads to Hagar fleeing from Sarah. But it's here that the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar and makes her a great promise in Genesis 1610 to 12, he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for a multitude. Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And then verses 13 and 14 give Hagar's response. She says, or it says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Laha Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So do you see in Genesis 25, we simply see the name, Laha Roy, where Isaac settles. And it reminds us of Genesis 16, and God's faithfulness to Hagar. So a, a, a little geographic detail is another signpost of the faithfulness of our God. Now, fifth, and finally, Ishmael and his sons. This is verses 12 to 18 of Genesis 25. They center on Ishmael's genealogy. Verses 16 and 18 are key. They say these are the sons of Ishmael and their na- and These are the sons of Ishmael and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. In verse eighteen, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. We already read the Lord's promise in Genesis sixteen twelve that Ishmael would dwell over against all his kinsmen. So that evidently came to pass. But we didn't mention God's promise regarding Ishmael in Genesis 17. There in verse 20, God says, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. So God said Ishmael would father 12 princes and guess what? Ishmael fathered 12 princes. God said Ishmael would dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael settled over against all his kinsmen. So why do we go through all of that? Well, it's present in the text, but also so that we can see that God is faithful to complete, to fulfill every one of his promises. He does not let a single one of them drop. Every one of his promises comes to pass. In his commentary on Genesis 12 to 25, Rolf Davis points out the evidences of God's faithfulness in these verses. So he actually lists all the examples that I just mentioned, except for one. So please know that those are not original to me. But listen to the powerful application that Davis draws from this. I think this is so encouraging. He says, "'These verses are not of the razzle-dazzle sort. "'You have to dig them out and think them through.' They are very low-key. It's nothing like Abraham's gallbladder being miraculously healed or Sarah's sciatica suddenly disappearing. God wraps a lot of his faithfulness in plain brown packages. But if you can appreciate this text, you realize it is loaded with divine assurances. And this should tell you that you don't need sensational signs and wonders and racy testimonies and ranting televangelists. You don't need super signs because you have Ishmael's genealogy and Hagar's well, in the cave of Machpelah, and you can run with that. And if your Lord is completely reliable on these matters, then surely he can be trusted to fulfill his assurances in John 6.37 and 10.28. Which, by the way, John 6, six thirty-seven is: all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 10:28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So do you see what's important to slow down and see this in the text? They're present there, but they are encouraging to us now. God has always done what he says he would do. He is reliable 100% of the time. You can trust him. So knowing that, just listen to some of the promises he gives us in his word. We've already read a couple from John that Delroff Davis gave us, but here are some more. Romans 10, nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Proverbs 3, five to six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Philippians 4, 6 to 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Revelation 21.3-4, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All these are promises of God that you can take to the bank. He will never fail to complete them. And we could go on and on and on. So if you are struggling this morning, or even if you're not, let me encourage you today or this week to get some time alone with God in his word or to meet with someone in in your community group and list out some of God's promises to you. And then pray in faith. Ask God to believe that he will, ask God to help you believe that he will make good on his word. And Trust that he's going to. He's never failed before, and he is not about to start now. Our God is faithful. That's point one. Let's look to verses 19 to 26 now in our second point, our sovereign God. We'll actually focus on 19 to 23 here. So verses 19 to 20 begin like this. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. In Genesis, Moses, who wrote the book, he often uses the phrase "These are the generations" to shift the focus or the attention from one character to another. So in Genesis 11:27, he does this. He uses it in reference to Abraham's dad, to Ra, shifting the attention to Abraham, where it's been from. Chapter 12, all the way through now to chapter 25. But here, here Moses is using that phrase again, shifting the focus, focus from Abraham to Ra's son, now to Isaac and his sons, Jacob and Esau. So that's going to be the focus for the next several chapters. But before we get to Jacob and Esau, notice that there's a problem in the text. Verses 21 or verse 21 says. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The theme of childlessness in the covenant family of God occurs again. Remember that Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren. She didn't have Isaac until God miraculously intervened. And by that time, Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham was 100. From the time that God first promised to make Abraham a great nation in Genesis 12 and until so Isaac was born in Genesis 21, 25 years took place. And it's not that much different here. Verse 20 says that Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah. And verse 26 says he was 60, when, or she was 60 when she had Jacob and Esau. That means they were, they were without kids. She experienced barrenness for 20 years. But what's different is how this couple responds to this trial. Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands and agreed for Abraham to marry Sarah's servant Hagar and have a child through her. But here, verse 21 says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. God promised offspring to Abraham, and in response to the prayer of Isaac, the heir of the covenant, he continues to make good on his word childlessness here is no obstacle for the God of the universe. It's important for us to reflect on this, I think, because it can be easy sometimes to read stories like this in the Bible, especially Genesis, where there's so much text, and, and, and skip over the weight of the years that are present. Like, it took years, 25 years for the son of promise to be born to Abraham and Sarah. It took 20 years for children to be born to Isaac and Rebecca. But God here, he answers the prayers of a faithful husband pleading to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to give us everything we ask for Him in prayer. In fact, He doesn't give us everything we ask for, and that's a really good thing. God actually, though, He gives us everything we need. But what this does mean is that we can pray big prayers, believing that God is a good Father who can do the impossible. So along these lines, listen to the exhortation from Kevin DeYoung. He says, if all your prayers came true this week, Who would be converted? Whose marriage would be restored? What great gospel advance might there be? And what missionaries would be sent out? So that's not the central point of this passage, but I think one that can be encouraging to us is that of prayer and how God answers it. Isaac prays and the Lord responds. Our God is a God who miraculously answers prayer, and so I think we can pray and should pray big. Okay, so Rebecca conceives, but back to the text, notice that conflict quickly arises. Verses 22 to 23 say, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So Rebecca's pregnant with children. They struggle together in her womb, and before either is born, God proclaims their destinies. The rights of the firstborn that were present at this time in this culture are going to be reversed. The older Esau is going to serve the younger Jacob. Paul picks up on this in Romans 9, 6 to 13. Uh, If you have a pew Bible, I would encourage you to turn there with me just so you can see some of this. It's on page 945 if if you are using the pew Bible. So in Romans 9, Paul is wrestling with the fact that many of his Jewish kinsmen, physical children of Abraham, aren't in Christ. And he points out that Only the children of the promise are the true children of God. And referencing Genesis 25, he mentions Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. And he says this. Look with me at at, uh, Romans 9, uh, starting in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls... She, that's Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that salvation, that inclusion in the family of God is based on God's sovereign choice. It's not based on what family you're born into, and it's not based on the good or bad deeds that you have done. So while Jacob and Esau were both Isaac's children, before they were born and had done nothing good or bad, God chose Jacob, not Esau, to receive the promise. And while the Israelites, Paul's kinsmen, are physical descendants of Abraham, their inclusion in God's family is not based or is based on God's choice. It's not based on their physical heritage or their deeds. So the only people who are saved, the only people who are brought into the family of God, the only people who receive God's love and mercy in it are those whom God chooses. What's your reaction to that? Well, in Romans 9, Paul addresses two possible questions. The first is, does this make God unjust? Think about it irrespective of their deeds, God chooses Jacob and not Esau. Is that fair? Listen to Paul's response in Romans 9, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul emphatically states that God is not unjust, but you may have noticed he doesn't specifically answer The question he doesn't specifically answer why god's choice to save some and not others is not unjust instead he says that god will have mercy on whom he on whom he will have mercy and he has compassion on whom he will have compassion and then he gives a negative example with pharaoh so this leads to the second question the first was is god unjust and paul answers no But the second is in Romans 9, 19. Paul says, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? That makes sense, right? If God chose Jacob over Esau, then how can Esau be held responsible for his unbelief? Listen to Paul's answer in Romans 9, 20 to 24. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So, Paul provides hope here to be sure. God has chosen to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy. He didn't have to do that. So, there's hope here, but notice he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he turns the tables on the inquisitor and he says, Who are you to ask this of God? God's the potter. You're the clay. You don't get to put the creator of the universe on trial. Wrestling with God's choice of Jacob over Esau and the truths Paul reveals in Romans 9 is like climbing a theological mountain, working and laboring to understand God and how he operates, only to get near to the top, to the pinnacle, and find that God says, stop go no further so how should we respond to these things i think there are five ways one we should stand in awe of god and confess with deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29, the secret things belong to the lord our god god's thoughts are higher than our thoughts his ways are not our ways he is knowable yes but he is also beyond our full comprehension. And that's a good thing. Tim Keller, he says, quote, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Perhaps we could adopt that phraseology and say, if your God is completely understandable to you and never acts in ways beyond your comprehension, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So we should read this and stand in awe of God and worship Him. But two, we should hold in tension the truths of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So yes, in Romans 9, Paul says that salvation is based on God's sovereign choice on election. But don't forget what Paul says in Romans 10. Again, expressing his desire that his Jewish kinsmen be saved, he offers this word of hope in verses 9 and 13. Paul is not speaking out of both sides of his mouth here. It is true that God elects to show mercy to some and not to others. That's Romans 9. It's equally true, though, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans 10. It is true that inclusion in Abraham's family of faith is based on God's sovereign choice. It is equally true that everyone who trusted Jesus is part of Abraham's offspring. Listen to John Piper's reflections on this. I think this is helpful. This teaching of Romans 9 does not contradict the truth that Jacob and Esau and you and I make choices in life and will be held responsible for those choices. If Jacob is saved, he will be saved by faith. And if Esau is finally condemned, he will be condemned for his evil deeds and unbelief. Our final judgment will accord with the way we have responded to the gospel in this life, which means that our final entry into heaven or to hell is not unconditional. To be finally saved, we must have believed. And to be lost, we must have sinned and not believed. No one will stand on the precipice of hell and be able to say, I don't deserve this. How God renders certain the belief and unbelief of men without undermining our accountability, I do not fully understand. If this stretches your mind to the breaking point, better that your minds be broken than that the scriptures be broken. And even better yet would be to let your mind and heart be enlarged rather than be broken so that they can contain all that the scriptures teach. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. These are not, as Charles Spurgeon once said, enemies. They are friends. So there, there, there's no reconciling, he says, that needs to take place. You don't reconcile friends, you reconcile enemies. They are instead equal truths that must be affirmed at one and the same time. We don't know exactly how it works. I can't, I'm with John Piper here, I can't tell you how God operates in this way. I can't ex- explain all of the intricacies of this, but I do know that it's what the Bible teaches. And therefore, it's what we should affirm. So, we should stand in awe of God. The secret things belong to the Lord. And we should hold these truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility together. Three, we should humbly celebrate our salvation. If you are a Christian, God did not save you because of your good works. Rather, He chose to save you and show you mercy by His sovereign will and design. That should kill any boasting or pride on our part. I didn't contribute anything to my salvation. And likewise, that should result in celebration on our part. I didn't contribute anything to my salvation, yet God chose me still, and He showed His mercy to me and saved me. This should lead to humility, this should lead to celebration that God has chosen to extend his grace and mercy to us. And if you're here today and if you aren't trusting Jesus, don't despair. So how can you know for sure that God has chosen you for salvation? Call on the name of the Lord. Turn away from your sin and trust Jesus to save you. He will, he won't cast you out. And you can leave here this morning rejoicing that in eternity past, God chose to adopt you into his family of faith. And this morning, in the present, God has made it a reality. So let's humbly celebrate. Four, we should pray hard. Don't miss the connection in Genesis 25 between Isaac's prayer and Jacob and Esau. God sovereignly determined the destinies of Jacob and Esau before they were born, yet at the same time he brought these boys into existence through the prayer of their father. Genesis 25, Romans nine, the doctrine of election, they do not render prayer obsolete. They actually add fuel to the fire. God accomplishes his sovereign purposes through the prayers of his people. So we can and we should pray asking God to hear and respond and we should believe that he is able to do anything to accomplish all of his purposes. Five, we should evangelize boldly and compassionately. So the truths of Romans 9, notice, they don't make Paul dispassionate toward his Jewish kinsmen. He is in anguish over them. He's in anguish over his over their unbelief. He wants them to know and love Jesus. And he's hopeful still that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we should respond in kind. If the sovereignty of God and salvation leads us to a lack of evangelism, we don't understand it. Yes, God has chosen to show his mercy to some and not to all, but we aren't privy to that information. What we do know is that God is sovereign and that he is able to save everyone who calls on his name. And so we should feel compassion toward those who don't know Jesus. We should share the gospel with them, knowing that salvation is the Lord's work and it's not ours, and that no one is too far from God's reach. Our God is faithful. He comes to on every promise. Our God is sovereign. He actually has the ability to keep his every word, And he works all things, including salvation, according to the counsel of his will. And then finally, and this is our last point, our God is holy and gracious. Look at verses 24 to 34 of Genesis 25. So the destinies of these children of Esau and Jacob are proclaimed before they were born. They represent two peoples who will be divided. And in a reversal of custom, God chooses the older or the younger over the older. In verses 24 to 26, this reality presents itself in real time. Look with me at those verses. It says, When her days, Rebekah, to give birth were completed, behold, the twins, there were twins in her room, in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Both boys' names are important here. Esau gets his name because he was red and hairy, but those words communicate something about the name Esau came to be known by. Edom is similar to the Hebrew word for red, and something about Esau's dwelling place. Seir is similar to the Hebrew word for hairy. Jacob, on the other hand, gets his name because he came out holding Esau's heel. So that already signifies uh, what's going to happen, that the younger will serve the older, Jacob jockeying for place, grabbing his brother's heel. But in Hebrew, Jacob is similar to the word for heel, but there's something deeper going on here too. Some commentators point out that Jacob is also tied to something like deceiver or treachery, which as we'll see some in this chapter, and then as we continue through Genesis, describe some of his actions. So, in this last section here of chapter 25 know that Jacob and Esau and neither one are presented in a glowing light. Both have sin, both commit wrong, but there is still a difference between the two, namely that Jacob is the son of promise. He's the one through whom the covenant promises would extend, not Esau. But let's continue. Look with me at at verses 27 and 28. They say, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So already you can kind of see the makings of conflict. At their birth, Jacob is holding his brother's heel. When they grow up, they are very different people. Esau is a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob's a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Some commentators actually point out there that the description given for Esau, skillful hunter, man of the field, points to his uh, profane nature, whereas Jacob's uh, description of being a quiet man, dwelling in tents, uh, points positively to his character. But they are, they are different people but also there is parental favoritism going on here. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The makings of conflict are present. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Literally how that reads is, let me eat some of that red stuff, that red stuff. It's actually present twice in the text. It says, Therefore, his name was called Edom. Again, Edom and red are similar. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So here, when the text says that Jacob was cooking stew, it may seem innocent enough, but the word translated cooking or boil in some translations can also mean act presumptuously. One commentator points that out and he says, Jacob's boiling the pottage seemed a simple act. But by the choice of this word, the narrator implies that Jacob was hunting his prey and that he was acting presumptuously. So the Esau is described as the hunter, but here Jacob is the one going after prey. So in other words, Jacob lays a trap and Esau walks right into it. So he comes into the field and the picture is, is of a guy who is famished. He's starving. He wants food. He wants red stuff, that red stuff. Again, it's because of that that Esau's called Edom. And Jacob seizes that opportunity, and he demands that Esau sell him his birthright. And this is where the transfer happens. The younger or the older will serve the younger. Jacob takes advantage of Esau's hunger, and he seizes his birthright in this exchange. So at this time, the birthright signify the rights of the firstborn. You can see the importance of it in a text like Deuteronomy 21:17, where the firstborn receives a double portion of the family inheritance. But here, what I think we need to recognize is what's happening in the unfolding story of this family. So remember, Genesis shows us God's plan of redemption as it's being accomplished through the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God's promises are continuing down this family line. And here in this text, it's important to, to, to figure out where we are in the timeline. We've learned that Abraham died when he was 175 years old. Well, he had Isaac when he was 100. And Isaac had Jacob and Esau when he was 60. So if Abraham had Isaac when he was 100 hunt And if Isaac had Jacob and Esau when he was 60, and if Abraham lived till he was 175, that means that Jacob and Esau were about 15 years old when Abraham died. In other words, Abraham was still alive when Jacob and Esau were born. I read one commentator who pointed this out so pointedly. He said something to the effect of, you can imagine Abraham, the one who received the covenant promise of God, sitting with his grandsons on his lap, looking up at the sky, looking up at the stars and telling them about God's covenant. In other words, it's hard to imagine with Abraham still alive, with with their father Isaac present, that Jacob and Esau would not have known about the covenant promise of the Lord. And so that adds weight here to what's happening. This is Esau's birthright. He's the firstborn. If custom holds true... Esau's the one who should receive this promise, not Jacob. But in real time, again, God, again, our choices matter. Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, his brother, for some red stuff, some red stuff. And the text says Esau despised his birthright. So, what are we to make of all of this? Well, Esau provides a warning he proved himself to be unworthy of the blessing. He set his sights on what was in front of him, the, the stew, and he treated God's promises as meaningless. He gave away his most prized possession for some red stuff. So if you in any way feel like Esau gets the raw end of the deal here, hear again those words from John Piper. No one will stand on the precipice of hell and be able to say, I don't deserve this. Yes, the promises God said before they were born would extend through Jacob, not Esau. But here, Esau sins against God. He holds his promises in contempt. Hebrews 12 describes Esau as unholy. That's serious. So the question for us is, do we hold God's promises in contempt? Do you seek to take matters into your own hands or do you trust God? Do you see God as your highest good? Do you see Jesus as your all-supreme treasure? Or do you prove by your actions, thoughts, and attitudes that you value something else? Be watchful here. A good quote from Matt Smithhurst says, the most common way to reject King Jesus is not with a defiant curse, but a disinterested shrug. So we may not stumble upon a brother in the field and exchange a birthright for some stew, but hear the warning. The most common way to reject King Jesus is not with a defiant curse, but a disinterested shrug. Jesus demands all of our attention. He is worthy of it, and he is good. In regard to Jacob, he commits the sin of his father, of his grandfather Abraham. He takes matters into his own hands to extend the covenant blessing. Yes, he gains the birthright he sought, but he did so in the wrong way. And as we're going to see as we continue in Genesis, there are negative effects to that. So this is a call for us to trust on the Lord and wait for him. But Jacob also gives us a glimpse into the wonderful grace of God. So maybe you look at him and you don't want him to receive the birthright. If you see how he acts in Genesis 25, I mean, he's kind, of a, he's kind of a snake. He kind of sets his brother up. He doesn't deserve to receive God's covenant blessing. He doesn't deserve to receive God's grace. But isn't that the point? Grace isn't shown to those who deserve it. In fact, if grace is extended at all, it's going to be extended to those who don't deserve it. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. So we should look at a guy like Jacob and we should be humbled. God has extended grace to me. I'm so much like Jacob. We should be encouraged. God can show his grace to anybody. If he can show his grace to Jacob, anybody can be saved. Anyone can come to know the Lord and be part of his family. So God is faithful God is sovereign, and God is holy, and he is gracious. That's what we celebrate when we take communion. So if the guys who are going to serve can go ahead and come to the front. We are, indeed, all sinners deserving God's judgment. Thankfully, Jesus, the far-off descendant of Abraham, came and he did for us and our salvation what we were unable to do. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God. He offered himself up as an unblemished sacrifice for sins and he rose from the dead triumphantly three days later. And then after completing his work, he sat down at God's right hand, having completed the work that he set out to do. So when we come to this table, we are coming celebrating the truth Of the gospel that by god's grace through jesus through his death and resurrection we've been brought into the family god has saved us and it's not because of anything good that we have done it's surely by his grace so at this table we celebrate that and we celebrate and remember what our savior has done for us and so if you are a believer in jesus if you're following christ and trusting in him alone for salvation we encourage you to take part of this table to participate with us. In a moment, we're going to distribute the bread, which represents Jesus's body, given for the sheep and the cup, which references Jesus's blood poured out. So please celebrate with us if if you're trusting in and following Jesus. But if you're not a Christian, please let the elements pass. Don't partake and instead, come and grab me after the service. I would love to talk to you more about how you can be part of the family of God. So we'll distribute the bread and the cup while the music is playing and just hang on to those. And then after everyone is served, we'll partake of the table together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for you. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Lord, thank you for saving us. Lord, thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, thank you for waking us up from spiritual death and giving us life in Jesus. You have done for us uh, such wonderful things. You have made us new, made us your children, made us part of your family. And so we celebrate that, God, and we thank you. You are faithful to fulfill all your promises and sovereign and holy and gracious. Lord, so please fill us up with hope and encouragement at at that truth today. And Lord, help us to go from this place Uh, celebrating and telling others about Christ and how they too can get in, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Lord, be with us now as we partake of the bread and the cup here. In Christ's name, amen.